Hello and welcome to Football Unfocused, the podcast where myself, Mark, and my uh, good friend Matt speak bollocks about football for a while uh, until we get fed up and then we stop talking about football. <laughs> Isn't that right, Matt? Until the next week. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's right. It's um, it's actually interesting. I was, I was, I was just two days ago. I was googling whether there's a world record for how fewer podcast um, listens there is, and I, I reckon we might be a, we might be have we a good shot at that one. We, we can, can do, do that. <laughs> but if I bothered, maybe maybe I will actually start to use the uh, <laughs> the, tw- the Twitter. For, I've heard the Twitter's going to really catch on. Yeah, if I start knocking out some controversial, I need to find you know form some controversial opinions and start winding people up, and then and then what we can do is if we can we can attract the sort of hate crowd, people who can uh, <laughs> take, take such offence to you and I as characters, that they can then troll us on social media and then listen to the podcast just so they can write unkind things. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. I just. I'll just be grateful for the interest. You just want some feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about if they bring it to your doorstep and it gets that, you know, that bad? They start turning up outside with pitchforks and, you know, accusing you of all sorts. <laughs> well, you know, they'll have to join the queue, that's what I say. Yeah. Oh, that, 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 that was funny. Yeah. Ru- ru- rubbish, rubbish banter there, man. Yeah. That's why, that's why this is a failing podcast. No, no, yeah, I know. Yeah. There's, um, just sort of leading into what we're talking about, um, which is what in relation to the European Super League, uh, we were saying before we started recording that you were like, there was a point you made last week which I I should have fucking disagreed with more because it was absolute bullshit. Oh, bollocks, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which I did disagree with at the time. But I'm gonna, yeah, you I, did. Yeah, but you've now set me up to disagree with you now even okay, more passionately. Okay, well, do, do you want to <laughs> Well, your point was that, that in the in no, the deb- no no in- so let's let's what what we need to sort of say what we're talking about. Do we? Of, Does anyone care? <laughs> well, what we're talking about. All right, what we're talking about today. We're just extending a little bit from last week's conversation about the European Super League, but we don't want to bang on about that specifically the whole time. Although there are a couple of couple of things I guess to maybe discuss or look at what's happened in the last week and what's likely to happen moving forward. But also. Um, the subject of lack of competition or a some sort of stifling of competitiveness seems to be the, the thing that people objected to the most about the um, about the Super League. And it's quite interesting to actually look at the state of competitiveness as things stand, the state of competitiveness in um, domestic football in particular, but uh, you can also look at it kind of across the continent and whether that represents a trend and whether there is actually already a worrying lack of competition. And if there is, what can be done to remedy that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so, yeah, absolutely. I go back um, to my passionate uh, disagreement. Uh, the, yeah, the point you, that you took most... Well, you made yeah. the point. You made the point last week that uh, pundits, who are themselves former players, kind of didn't really have the uh, moral authority to criticise the European Super League clubs or the clubs that had signed up for it. Because whenever, as players, they were offered more money, they never at any point thought, where's this coming from, and sort of turned it down. And, I mean, that that's just bollocks, isn't it? Because, like, if you work for any organisation, you are, you are a you bring value to that company and you are paid what you are worth. So this is why I will always argue with anyone who says footballers are overpaid. Of course, on a moral level, footballers are over, 
overpaid. Of course they are. That is, that is, you can't argue in any other way. It's unforgivable. We, we live in a world where, you know, a nurse will earn, you know, 25, 30 grand and a footballer, even the real basic Premier League footballer would earn that in a, in a week, more than that in a week, you know, and obviously the real elite, which everyone loves to focus on, but actually not that many earn the real elite money, but some are on two, three, in £400,000 a week. So it's extraordinary amounts of money. But we don't live in a fair society. We live in a, you know, a I would call it quite an extreme free market society in which, you know, because of the result of the unfortunate victory of Thatcherism uh, 30, 40 years ago, and it's, it's, it's a stranglehold that it still has and, and predominance over the way in which we live our lives, then... You are basically paid what you are, what your value is f- to the market. And if a footballer, if you're an elite footballer, if you're Neymar and you're the world record um, signing for any football club and you join PSG and you know that not only are PSG, not only do PSG have almost limitless funds, so you can pretty much name your price, but also you know that by signing for them, you're going to increase the attractiveness of the club to a global audience. You're going to probably double, maybe even treble uh, shirt sales, merchandise sales, international visitors who want to come and watch you play. So you're essentially going to grow the club by, by signing for them. Then you're almost like you are, you are a massive stakeholder in that organization and you deserve to be paid, uh, in a way that represents that. And it's funny because nobody really gets on their high horse about Formula One drivers and the amount they earn, golfers, tennis players, uh, execs at top sort of blue chip companies. All of them earn more than even the best paid footballers. You know, it's extraordinary the amount of money that golfers and tennis players and, and Formula One drivers in particular earn. But they're, I would argue this is very much a class issue. They are middle class pursuits, performed by the middle classes, for the middle classes, and therefore there's there's kind of no objection to it. I think that the reason that football gets such a, a bad press for the um, uh, um, amounts of money that these talented young men earn is, is an inverted snobbery. It's because they're still, to this day, largely working-class kids who often come from urban environments whose family wouldn't necessarily have had huge amounts of money when they were growing up. And there's a, there's a jealousy and an inverse snobbery there. And that's why they get trashed in the press uh, for whenever they spend their money in a way in which the middle classes don't agree with. They regard it as a little bit vulgar or distasteful. And even worse than that, as has been seen in the case of Raheem Sterling um, over the last few years, when you compare the the coverage he gets to the way he spends his money to the way other uh, white uh, young English footballers um, get treated for spending their money in exactly the same way, then there's undoubtedly an element of racism, uh, certainly at very least beneath the surface, but probably quite significantly above the surface um, in that coverage. So I will always stand up for footballers in that respect, you know, because we the world in which we live in, you can't you can't use sort of idealistic criteria to criticise the money they earn. And just because they take the, the coin from the top table doesn't mean they don't have the right to criticise it because it means they care about the game because in order to devote that amount of hours required to become a professional footballer in the first place, I know you do get the occasional example of a player who 
genuinely has no love of the game and they do it as a means to an end and they just happen to be good at it. But most footballers play football because they absolutely love playing football when they were five, six, seven years old and have retained a lifelong passion for the game. And you look at the, the Sky Sports um, analysts, Carragher and Neville, the way they reacted uh, you know, in the previous week to the European Super League, the passion, uh, but also the eloquence in which they sort of tore apart the... Um, the reforms that the Super League um, um, recommended or were inflicting upon football, it showed that at heart they are just they're just football fans. They are people who love football. They've devoted their life to football, and they don't want to see it ruined by some out of touch oligarchs and billionaires. You know, um, so yeah, that's the point I wanted to make. Matt, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, no. and it's a cheap. It's a, it's a cheap point. I would like to think. Um... I've nuanced my opinion slightly um, since 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 last week, and I think I think possibly what I took um, issue with was how during that week when the ESL was proposed and then fell apart, you know these kind of individuals who were sort of these sort of faux man of the people type um, individuals, and we obviously had our prime minister, um, but oh, yeah. just. Just, just anyone and everyone sort of stepping up. Oliver Dowden, you know, arguably people that, you know, don't really even support football were now coming out, you know, because it was seen, perceived as a, you know, that the, the fans were getting thrown under the bus. But, and I think, and, and what probably crystallised that a, a little bit was I was listening to a podcast, it was a politics podcast, and they had um, Steve Parrish on it. Um, the chair of um, Crystal, Crystal Palace. Palace. <clears throat> and I was listening to this guy, and I was like, he almost sounded like a gangster. It was almost comical, his accent. And and I sort of went on his Wikipedia to sort of find out what is his back, like, where has he come from? And he, you know, he's obviously from London, but he, like, went to this £20,000 a year private school. And I was just like, you know, and he was obviously on the side of the you know, the fans are getting, and I was like, these, and that, that's where, and I think <clears throat> that's possibly where I take issue. And, and I, and I, I, and to an extent I stand by, I agree with everything you say, but I just feel that when you earn X amount of money, you, you lose your, you know, some eligibility to be able to speak up for the people. I think it depends. They're not running for office, are they? They're not like you know. They 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 are just speaking on behalf. They're speaking on behalf of their industry. They work in that particular industry. Their interests are in that industry. They're not they're not actually speaking on behalf of the people. But what they are doing is speaking on behalf of their clubs and the fans that those clubs represent. And they are the people best positions, regardless of whether or not they were privately educated. It's kind of it kind of doesn't matter. You know, I see what you say about. Steve Parrish, you know, he's a businessman. He, you know, he almost certainly was. But just just because he's got a bit of a working class accent doesn't mean he couldn't have been privately educated. You don't. Not everyone comes out of private school speaking like they're sucking lemons. But we were having a discussion beforehand, and it is and it is true that there's no such nobody can go through their life without being um, tarnished with a little bit of hypocrisy. There's no such thing as a as a completely uh, hypocrisy-free individual. We all s- criticise other people for doing things that we have done at one stage of our lives, but it doesn't mean that you can't criticise. And this is one of the this is one of the um, 
uh, most kind of often used, but most cynical tactics used by people who want to stifle criticism. They'll say, well, what right have you got? I had someone said to me last week, oh, who does Carragher think he is uh, criticising the European Super League after he spat at that fan a few years ago? Now, that was a despicable thing to do. And I love Jamie Carragher. I'm, I'm not going to defend that. That was a terrible thing to do. But what the hell has that got to do with his right to comment on the European Super League? To pick holes in the hypocrisy of uh, individuals because they want to talk about something as as relatively trivial as football is mm. uh, is a bit rich, really. I think, but 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 ultimately, you know, it, oh, and another yeah, that's it. Another thing that was said a lot last week was that all these people who work for Sky don't have the right to comment because Sky themselves were responsible for kind of buddying up with the group of elite clubs in the early 90s who formed the Premier League in the first place. But Premier League was essentially just a rebadged version of exactly the same competition that was there before, that Football League Division 1, as it used to be called, um, was exactly the same thing with exactly the same teams in it. They didn't try and end relegation. They didn't try and stop teams from getting uh, promoted into the Premier League. They just wanted to create an environment where the um uh the sort of you know the the elite of of English football was was given a bit more power and influence. Now you can argue whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. It's certainly been a good thing for the the overall uh quote product. I hate myself already for using that term. But but you look at the way the Premier League is now, it wouldn't be that way if it had carried on the way it was prior to 1992. But clearly other there's been other you know knock on effects in terms of the you know, the cost and the hyper-consumerism, et cetera, et cetera, um, that maybe people don't like so much. And it's a balancing act and it's an individual choice as to whether you, you like that or not. But they didn't at any stage want to stifle competition. And competition was the, you know, that was the fundamental flaw in the European Super League. Aside from everything else, aside from all the, you know, the greed and the, the repetition and everything, but it's the, the lack of competition and the, the the credibility gap there, you know, as a result of that. How can any competition really be credible when there's no peril um, and no risk of relegation? And, you know, I know that, again, as we said last week, if you compare that to the American model, that is essentially how they run their, their sport anyway. But that is, it, it goes against the 130, 140-year-old um sort of traditions across not just in England but across the whole of European and most of world football where teams go up teams go down and everyone no matter how unrealistic has the right to um to to fight for the dream to live the dream but that subject of competition that is kind of the other thing that I wanted to um to touch on really because it's what became clear in that week is how competition is something that is is you know sacred to all sports fans, certainly football fans. But there's been a few things in recent years on the domestic level, but also uh, you you pointed me towards a uh, an article by um, one of your um, Times journalists that you hero worship. You do love to hero worship those journalists that take the Murdoch shilling, don't you? Uh, I know you 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 know your your level of reverence to anyone associated with the Times is uh, unparalleled, and. Um, uh, but that was, but, but but that's Matthew's side, and he he wrote an article about uh, how over the last um, what was it ten years, there's been so many um, 
kind of trends and incident, incidences of achievement that were previously um, um, well had previously never happened over the last ten years that have now become commonplace in all in most of the sort of you know domestic leagues. Um, things like you know he he used the example in Germany no team had ever done a treble and that treble includes the Champions League so that's uh, winning the league winning domestic cup winning the uh, Champions League and I think Bayern Munich have now done that twice I think in the last uh, ten years no one had ever done that before uh, Inter Milan uh, did the treble at the beginning of the uh, the 2010s and I think then Juventus have gone on to win seven. Um, uh, uh, league titles in a row and they've done a domestic treble as well uh, obviously Manchester City won the, the other team from Manchester had won the, uh, the the Premier League Champions League and FA Cup in the same season in 1999 but two years ago Man City did the domestic treble won all three domestic trophies no one had ever done that before you know and you've obviously had things like um the, the the title races between Manchester City and Liverpool in the recent years, where you have to essentially get to a hundred points or ninety nine points to win the league, which again unprecedented. So all of these things point towards an increasing dominance of one, two, or three super clubs and the lack of competition. And I think that is perfectly reasonable to um, sort of conclude that when looking at European football. But I would even say it's not even at the super club level. So when you look at the Premier League this season, the three, three to, so as we record this now on the 30th of April, the, the bottom three are almost certain to go down, right? You've got Sheffield United, second season in the Premier League, and then you've got West Brom and Fulham just come up. So the three teams that are almost certain to go down were either promoted in the last 12 months or the 12 months prior to that. Then look at the teams who are already confirmed to come up and take their place. Watford and Norwich, lockdown promotion already. They were both relegated 12 months ago. So they're coming straight back up. The teams that are in the playoffs, one of them is Bournemouth. Bournemouth are in the best form at the moment of all the playoff teams and probably the favourites to come back up. If that happens, I think that would be the first time since the formation of the Premier League that all three relegated clubs get promoted immediately. Mm. Now, that might end up being a bit of a, a statistical anomaly and a bit of a one-off. There might be other reasons to do with that um, that are pandemic-related. You know, it might be that... Um, because so many clubs have struggled financially that that had an impact on competition and other clubs' ability to sort of strengthen their squads. And also it probably meant that the teams that got relegated were able to hold on to those players because the scramble and the amount of money sloshing around to be able to buy those players was less than it would be in other years. Or it might be that the gap between all of the divisions is genuinely growing and you're going to get to a stage now where even in the championship, at any one time, only five or six clubs can ever realistically expect to get promoted because you even look at the um, the other teams that are in the championship playoff section at the moment. Barnsley are the kind of feel-good story of their, their kind of living the dream. They only just stayed up in the championship last season and now they're in the playoffs and they might end up in the Premier League for only the second time in their history and fantastic. But the other three are um, uh, Swansea, Brentford, Oh, and Bournemouth, of course, themselves. Swansea and Brentford were in that same slot last season or just below the slot. So, again, 
you know, they're finishing in pretty much the same position as they were. And even going down further to the relegation and promotion between Championship and League One. So last season, Rotherham, Coventry and Wickham got promoted from League One into the Championship. Hull, Wigan and Charlton went down. Rotherham, Coventry and Wickham, two of those are going to go down. Wickham are already down. Rotherham are almost certainly down. Coventry are going to stay up. Hull, Wigan and Charlton. Hull are already promoted to come back up. Uh, Charlton are likely to end up in the playoffs. Good chance of coming back up. Wigan, a uh, bit of a different example, fell into administration, got a massive point deduction and are actually at the other end of the table. But that, I, I think probably this season, more than any in recent memory, there's a there's a definite trend of teams that are uh, being promoted and relegated the next season, you know, coming down or going up um, immediately. And that's not good for football, if that becomes a thing. You know, Norwich, are, uh, Norwich were walloped pretty much every week in their uh, pre- last Premier League season in 1920. And it just storms the championship. They're, they're likely to get a, a record points uh, tally. Now, fair play to them. You can look at that and say, you know what? They're one of those clubs that are gradually building. They uh, had a plan. They stuck to it. They knew they were probably a bit early for the Premier League, but they stuck with their manager and they've invested wisely and they've brought youth players through and they were willing to take the relegation on the chin, invest the money wisely, come back up, and next time they come up, they'll be stronger. And there's precedent for that. Burnley have done that in the past. You know, They're now an established Premier League club, but when they first got promoted under Deitch, They went down immediately and then came back up stronger and have stayed there ever since. And West Brom have done things like that in the past. So I'm not saying that the conclusion is that kind of competition's dead and something drastic has got to be done to liven it up. But there are signs there that, let me put it this way, if this is still the case in 12 months' time, if we pick this up in 12 months' time and the same thing's happening at the end of next season, and bear in mind at the end of next season, you know, fingers crossed, we'll have just finished a season where there's going to be packed stadiums every week and the pandemic will hopefully be a bit of a distant memory. If that's still the case, you know, if you're looking at uh, Norwich and Watford um, and Bournemouth, if they get promoted as the three relegated teams again next year, then we really do have a problem. Because every year that a team's in the Premier League as well, don't forget, the amount of money they get compared to the amount of money you get in the Championship it just means they're getting stronger and stronger and less and less likely to, to be relegated. And it becomes it becomes easier for them to stay up, you know, with every additional year that they're in the Premier League, which is why, you know, you rarely get clubs that have been established for more than five or six years uh, then going down. But, yeah, I know what, and, and the thing is, no one wants to see this. And, and clearly, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to be unrealistic. You're not going to get a situation where, a top six team suddenly falls into a, a disastrous season and gets relegated, much as people would love to see it. I'm sure Liverpool aren't going to get relegated anytime soon. But then even go down like a tier from there, I'm sure I'm sure Everton and Leicester and West Ham and, um, you know, even um, well, Arsenal. Look at Arsenal at the moment. They're probably as bad as they've been in my lifetime. Uh, you know, they're, they're now genuinely a mid-table team who lose just as often as they win. But there's never any prospects of them them being relegated. So I realise that. And I know that, you know, much as I'd, I'd like it to be true, I think probably the last time a genuinely big club was relegated was probably the, the times that Newcastle 
uh, went down. And also, I remember in the early 90s when the Premier League first started, when Nottingham Forest had been like an elite club for about for about 15 years, and it was Brian Clough's last season, and they'd just gone stale, and they got they got relegated. And I remember all that season hearing, "Oh, they were too good, too too big to go down." So it does happen sometimes, but. Even then, you look at the history of those clubs and they were always, there's always been a certain amount of turmoil and promotion and relegation there, whereas there are some clubs that are just fixed. But I think if you, if you start to see a scenario in which only, you know, the same old clubs are kind of coming up, going down, coming up, going down, then that's, that's bad for football and it's bad for competition. And it means that we've got a problem on our hands that, might not be as kind of stark as a breakaway league that um, that means that nobody gets relegated, but it's still a problem because it will still affect the you know people's interest. Mm. I mean, <clears throat> it's interesting. Um, so as I mentioned last week, uh, it was it was about a month ago now that you sort of were of the opinion that that, that the Super League would happen. Yeah, and now. Um, now there's there's an argument that that um that the big clubs the super clubs that probably initiated this have have lost some of their uh their leverage their leverage yeah. now yeah and and so uh the super league i i guess i was interested the super league now probably won't happen for a long time if if it if it does kind of Ever happen, and I, yeah. yeah, and so what? What's your from that from a month ago when you were you were pretty confident that it would happen, and then the plans were released within a few weeks of you saying that, and then they capitulated so quickly. Yeah, what's your sort of view now as to okay? Well, yeah, what's gonna, well, ultimately what's that, happen? that that yeah, ultimately I guess that is the that's the that's the killer question, isn't it? Because I think everybody would like to think that the last you know fortnight has kind of put an end to those uh, those plans that they'll they'll now go away with their tail between their legs and they won't come back whether i guess the ultimate question as to whether or not this can rear its ugly head again is interesting because i think we'd all like to think no we all like everyone likes to look at the last week and see it as a victory for fans over sort of big out of touch nasty scary businessmen <laughs> and you know, we all want that to be true, and I hope it's true. And do you know what? There is a chance it is true. But I would say two things. Firstly, don't be don't be fooled into thinking that this came to an end because a few people turned up outside Ellen Road and Stanford Bridge. This happened. Look at the clubs that started to wobble in the first place. They were the clubs that didn't need the money. So Man City and Chelsea um, are, and PSG, who, did, who refused to take part at all. They're, 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 they're either officially kind of state-backed or as good as state-backed. You know, Abramovich, where, where's that money come from? That's a huge <laughs> amount of public resources that he's sort of by hook or by, you know, through certainly questionable means he's got his hands on. And there's so there's a, there's an enormous resource there. And they so they don't need, they don't have the financial problems. And particularly Man City are probably a better example of this. You know, they, they've invested so much into, into the kind of, you know, the, the infrastructure and the PR side of it because they, they are they they are a state-backed club. You know, they are essentially run by the government of Abu Dhabi who um, are never going to run out of money. So they don't have to worry about, you know, a kind of, you know, a balance sheet and making up for a surplus and then creating a closed shop that's going to bring in this protection for the, for the elite clubs. And they were only doing it 
and I know that some of this is maybe you could say this is just what they want you to believe. But I, I actually think that those clubs didn't need to do it. And they were really just doing it for fear of missing out and just not wanting to immediately deal themselves out of something that the other elite clubs had put themselves into. But it's no coincidence they were the first to waver. But don't make the mistake of thinking that that was because some fans turned up outside their gates. Because firstly, they're not there. How many of these owners are actually not just at the ground, but even in the same country as these when they're taking place? You know, like the the, the American owners of uh, Liverpool and and uh, uh, that lot from Old Trafford um, would, you know, they'd what wake wake up in the, assuming they live on the east coast of America, kind of five hours later, and they might see on social media, you know, there's a couple of hundred people with some unpleasant banners outside the ground. So, so what? You know, they don't, it doesn't have any impact on them. This fell apart ultimately because they were spooked by the strength of the reaction from an administrative level, so from FIFA and UEFA, the way in which they – and it wasn't just talk. I, I think they were really – for once, they were going to back it up. They were prepared to ban clubs from competitions. They were prepared to ban – players from taking part in international competitions. And then when government started to get involved and they were looking, oh my goodness, you know, there's a chance that they're going to actually take sanctions against us and reform the sport to stop us from doing this. That's what spooked them because they were, you know, and then they're worried about the enormous fines and the financial consequences. And the fact that their business model could have completely been torn up. And then when the, then the, you throw in the public mood going kind of against it and the possibility that this product, this dream product they thought they'd created might actually not be the winner they thought it was and the people wouldn't even necessarily be interested in watching it. It was a perfect storm for it to fall apart. Um, <laughs> I was thinking as well, we should probably do, we could possibly think of a, maybe a bonus episode every week where we do the podcast and then we'll do an additional like 15 minutes where you sort of stew over the crap that I've sort of come up with and then try yeah. to in a follow-up like in any other business yeah well yeah yeah we'll have to come up with a snappy title for that twat attack you know call it ways in which matt has been a twat uh that week and you know he's made some twattish points some you know lazy he's kind of got away with it in the moment but it slipped through but yeah but i've gone back i've listened to it you know the fucking thing came out someone's got to listen to it so i listened to it myself and uh, realized that the guy's been talking utter shit again um but you didn't i don't think you said anything um that outrageous this week matt this is a good time um, yeah. well yeah no i think you know call it a day there maybe yeah um but but, but just i just realized uh now that you've stumbled upon this uh this point that i didn't even explain at the very beginning of this podcast to anyone who's listening to this for the first time and if you are that person then i i can only apologize um but uh that, that matt uh, knows very little about football and doesn't really have much interest. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure, though, I'm sure those people wouldn't have picked up on that over the last forty minutes. But, you know, yeah. definitely not. They wouldn't have noticed the thing. They'd have thought that you are a devotee. They'd have just been thinking, "Oh, where's that guy got his season ticket? Because he's he's into this." Yeah. No, it's, it's good to always just clear that up, just for anyone who's Isn't slightly confused. Just, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. How did this guy get on this podcast? Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. What's he doing? Did he win a competition? Yeah. 
And, and anyway, we'll, we'll go now. But just to, to anyone who's, who's uh, well, everyone's going to be listening in the in the future because we don't even release this for like another 24 hours or so. But by the time this podcast is, uh, goes out, uh, the new series of This Time with Alan Partridge will have aired its first episode. And make sure you watch it, everyone. You're in for a treat. <laughs> BBC One, 9.30, Friday nights.